You're listening to Fem Innovation, hosted by Bethany Corbin. Bethany is a trailblazing leader and top voice in women's health technology and femtech. She inspires entrepreneurs to transform society's perception of women's health by disrupting and enhancing standard models of healthcare delivery. In this podcast, Bethany connects with the industry's most powerful and innovative voices to facilitate hard conversations about the status of women's health and break down barriers and taboos that restrict access to necessary healthcare services. This podcast is not intended as legal advice and is not an endorsement for any product or company. Now, here's your host, Bethany Corbin. So, Drs. Todd and Kim Saxon, welcome to the show. We are so excited to have you here today and really looking forward to this discussion. Thanks for having us. Yeah, we can't wait to talk to you, your group, your feminine. So I would love to start, you know, I've given my audience a little bit of an overview of your backgrounds, but I would love to hear more from you, kind of how you got into this space, how you started working on, you know, startups and their failures and their, you know, the main concerns that they have. What drove you to this space? Well, I'm going to go into the Wayback Machine. Uh, you know, as, as a child, I was one of those, you know, when we had snow days off, I grew up in New Jersey. I would go knock on all the doors in the neighborhood and and shovel walks for, you know, five bucks or whatever and had the newspaper route. And then some would say conned. I would say persuaded my mom into buying a lawnmower, which I would then use to mow our yard for free, but also could mow all the neighbor's yards. So kind of have a history of that, at least uh, self-employment uh, kind of thread of entrepreneurship. But when you dial forward, we've been in Indianapolis for more than 20-something years now. And as academics, you know, you, you start your teaching and you just meet interesting people. And one of the things that we jumped into was meeting with startups and finding out what their needs were, where they were, how can we offer some insight in terms of how to structure their business, how to run a safe business. And in a, I don't know, two or three year period, it feels like we had about a thousand coffees or breakfasts. And <laughs> we just started noticing these patterns of questions and issues, or people would come back and say, well, here's where we are now. And then we would see, a, you know, another pattern kind of emerging. It's fascinating work. Oh, absolutely. With my job, I work with startups on a daily basis, really helping the early stage companies understand how to form and grow their businesses, get their products to market. And so I was very excited to connect with you because it sounds like you do the exact same things from the business perspective, helping them understand and navigate that landscape and and to become successful at it, which I know is a very difficult thing to do in the startup world. Yeah, and not always successful. <laughs> like, to be fair and set expectations, even the ones we work with a lot, uh, have challenges, as, as you know, I'm sure, and your audience as well. But also, we do try to, I'm going to say, get our hands dirty. We, you know, we've jumped in, we've helped start some companies, we're active angel investors. So we're looking at this from an academic perspective as teachers, as researchers, but we've also kind of gotten into the game to see it from the inside perspective. And it's it's challenging, it's rewarding, it's fun, it's frustrating, it's all of those things. And it's important for anyone, but particularly femme innovators getting into a, a tech business, to have those expectations that it's a little bit of a roller coaster. 
It definitely is. And I'd like to talk about that more because you both wrote a book called The Titanic Effect, Successfully Navigating the Uncertainties That Sink Most Startups. And so I would love to know, and and I've read your book, I think it is a wonderfully detailed expedition into the challenges that startup companies face. But I would love for our audience to know kind of why is the Titanic a good metaphor to use when we're discussing startups and potential failures? We talk about this in the intro to the book, too. This is a little bit of our own journey where, you know, we have local innovation and startup conferences and and workshops and things like that. And we had noticed this pattern of uh, some common challenges. And so we wanted to share them. And so we started to share them. We're like, yeah, this needs a theme. And Todd came up with the idea, which I thought was pretty brilliant, which is like the the problem with these choices is they're all trade-offs and you don't actually know what all you're trading off. Like you have to make a choice without all the information. And then what you find out later is like, there's all this under the surface that went with this trade-off that you didn't anticipate. And that's when he said, well, this is kind of like an iceberg. When you think of icebergs, you think of the Titanic. And so he wanted to call this talk, the Titanic effect. It was like, Hey, you are a top-ranked business school professor. You can't just go making up stuff. (laughs) (laughs) And so we started doing the research and we were discovered, oh, you know, everybody thinks that the Titanic sunk because it hit an iceberg. But actually, it sunk because of all of the other choices that they made that when it hit the iceberg, it could not recover. So we thought that was more interesting. There's never one thing that sinks a startup. It's a combination of things. And it's those interactions that we wanted to capture with the concept of the Titanic effect. I think that's incredibly brilliant because you're absolutely right. It's not going to be one decision, right, or one event that's going to sink a startup. And I think a lot of startups have that misconception. And it's funny because you see a startup go under sometimes. And the number one question people ask is why? You know, what what happened to it so that I can avoid it on mine? And I think that they look for that one or two things that happened at the end, and they don't see all the decisions leading up to it. Yeah, I love the answer. We ran out of funding. Right. Yes. Yes, that's the most common. (laughs) You spent too much. You didn't raise enough. You raised too fast. You know, like there are lots of things that possibly are underneath that. Did you spend too much on the product? Did you spend too much on the people? Did you have the wrong target? Did you have a problem that people didn't really want to solve? I mean, you know, you can unleash a whole lot. Absolutely. And from your work with founders and in writing this book, what are some of the common sources of failure that you've seen for startups? And are there ways that other startups could avoid them? Yeah. So just to to build off the metaphor a little bit, one of the things that struck us and our third author on the book, Michael Corrin, is a serial tech entrepreneur. And he was doing a lot of talks in the local community a, a number of years ago at the origin of this about technical debt. And and one of your prior guests talked about user design and and technical debt and the importance of kind of understanding that in advance. And in our experience in the the many, many entrepreneurs and startups that we'd worked with over time, we kind of saw that it, it wasn't just the technical side where people made choices early that then either limited their success or even caused them to fail later. 
There were also the people involved, who the investors were or, or some of the fellow team members and how equity was allocated. Some of the early choices about customers to go after or markets and how that intersected with product design. And then, as Kim was suggesting earlier, how all of those pieces kind of fit together. So what we were looking for and the way the book is structured is around what we call these different oceans that involve the human side, the people involved, and that's co-founders, people you hire, investors, et cetera. The technical side, how you build and discover what problem you're solving for your customers, which gets to the marketing side, who you choose as your initial kind of target, and then the funding and strategy that pull all those pieces together. So at a high level, those are the different kind of oceans that we talk about and, and I think are important to recognize. It's not just about the technology. But also we detail 32 icebergs as, well, <laughs> as sources. And so we've you could say 32 is a lot and we can tell you at each stage there of the venture, there's more like, you know, some are more likely to be prevalent than others. But I would have to laugh this last week. Laugh is the wrong word. Chuckle. Last week, we were at a big conference here for innovation and startups and heard, I don't know, I think I heard about 30 pitches from startups. And one of the things we talk about as a big mistake is the uh, the issue of three Z's. You know, three founders get together and they're like, oh, this is so great. Let's start a startup and they get going. And and three people just is always kind of wonky, right? That it's hard for three people to do all the things that they need to do. And I was just watching how many of these startups were three people who started. It was the vast majority, again, of three and, people. And it's not like three is a cursor or bad necessarily, but when you have three people and you divide up equity equally and you're still at the like back of the napkin phase, you haven't even figured out what it is you're building and who's going to do the heavy lifting and moving the venture forward. That's one of the, what we call debtbergs or issues that startups encounter is allocating too much equity too early and not having a sensible vesting plan, for example, or way to structure how you earn that equity over time. Oh, absolutely. I've worked with a couple of clients who, you know, they aren't necessarily familiar with the ways in which equity should be divided or, you know, the vesting schedules. And so they say, yeah, we're going to allocate 100% equity to ourselves. And I say, your, your investors are going to love that. <laughs> <laughs> right. So I think, I think there's a lot that goes into this kind of pre-planning, you know, kind of pre-formation and how you're going to allocate equity that a lot of founders don't consider or don't know because they don't have that business background and expertise. Yeah. Well, also the conversation is ugly, right? It's a lot easier to say, oh, let's just divide between the three of us in 100% and, you know, but not really thinking about, well, what does that really mean? Who's giving up their day job? Those kinds of things. Those are hard conversations and people, you know, don't like to have them. Oh, absolutely. And especially at the early stages, right, when you don't want to necessarily be confrontational, you're kind of in that honeymoon phase where everybody is agreeing on the idea and the strategy. It can be difficult to determine how you even weigh co-founder contributions. Right. I know that's something that a lot of co-founders struggle with. Yeah. And I have to say, I was really excited. There's a startup alumni from our school who we have been talking to for almost the whole time that the startup's been founded, about four years and uh, just posted on LinkedIn, you know, we just hit our vesting schedule. So they had a four-year vesting schedule and the startup's four years old and growing well. And so, you know, he was able to like celebrate, hey, I got all of my equity <laughs> that I've earned over the last four years. 
Oh, that's amazing. And, you know, one of the conversations I always have to have with founders early on is why they need a vesting schedule, because they say, you know, it's my idea, it's my company. Why can't I just allocate 30% of equity to myself right now? And so that's a conversation I often have to have. I don't know if you've had to have those kind of same conversations with the startups you work with. Oh, so one of my, my worst conversations was a person who said, like, it's so great. I brought these two people in. I own the majority. I have 40. I gave each of them 30. So I get to make all the choices. I'm like, hello. (laughs) Not how it works. (laughs) They can throw you out tomorrow. Right. Right. Exactly. I think so many founders at this early stage, unfortunately, make choices, whether it's just because they don't know, right? They don't have the resources. They don't know how this works. And they make those choices that impact their you know, longevity and their fundability down the line. We see that a lot in the femtech community, unfortunately. Yeah. And I hate to say it, but it does feel a little bit like the women make these mistakes more often. And I don't know if it's because we want to be nice or we are not, haven't done the homework to know what the issues are. I worry for, you know, women founders. I try to have good conversations with them about the whole, like, how is equity going to work? How are you going to raise money? Because the odds are stacked against them in terms of raising money. And then if you aren't smart enough about how you go about raising money and how you vest, you know, it makes it even harder. A hundred percent. And I think, too, as we were alluding to and talking about a little earlier, there's also all of these different types of hidden debts that you talk about in your book, which are really those non-financial obligations or expectations that startups can accumulate over time and they don't really recognize it. Can you talk to us more about hidden debts and how they might limit success or cause a startup's failure? Sure. I'll I'll talk a little bit about one that is, as you know, so pressing for most startups, which is finding product market fit. And many inventors slash founders kind of have this idea in their mind of what they need to build and what problem they're solving and even how to talk about it and spend a lot on the technology and, and developing a solution without going out and doing the customer discovery, the exploration to understand what problem are you actually solving? What job are you doing for your customer? And what are their current pain points that you can address most immediately with the minimum amount of investment, getting to that minimally viable product, the MVP? So over-investing in a solution before actually, again, doing the, the hard work of understanding where your customer is coming from is one of those kind of hidden debts that we see a lot of startups make. You know, this is just so hard in that you see a problem and you really want to solve it and you feel like you have to jump in and have the perfect solution right from the start. We were hearing about a story from a, a woman-owned startup where you know, for three years, they did the startup manually because they didn't have the funds to invest in technology. And by the time they were really going and they could get funding, They knew exactly what technology to develop because they had been doing it for three years on paper. Now, three years is a long time to do something on paper, but we are constantly talking about, you know, a low resolution prototype so that you get some functionality in people's hands and you find out what they really, really, really need and like. I think that's a really good point that you raise because what I hear most often from founders is this need to get to market fast. And so I see a lot of them 
either creating solutions without doing the customer research, as you mentioned, or creating solutions that honestly are already out there because they haven't done the research on their competitors. And then they, they try to go get funding and they don't have a differentiator that they can articulate. And then they, you know, the investors aren't interested. And so I have seen that happen, especially in the femtech industry where we're growing really quickly. You know, investors are starting to realize that we have a large market area that's, that's been untapped, but we're seeing investment going into an innovation happening in kind of these same areas like period tracking apps or fertility apps, maternal health apps. And we're kind of neglecting, honestly, a lot of the other aspects of women's healthcare because they aren't quick to market solutions. Yeah. And so one of the things we see is the hyper. And I think that's a little bit of what you're seeing is that like a notion gets started and everybody jumps into it and then it accelerates and gets pretty fast paced. We're actually doing a research project looking at some data about hype curbs and investing by verticals to try and understand like if you are early in the hype curve versus later in the hype curve, what are the ramifications? Because if you have to be early, that means you're constantly having to anticipate where the market is moving towards we're hoping it'll be like the middle somewhere, like the early ones sort of figure out what's not broken and what doesn't work. And then the next group comes in. So we're interested to see where that goes, but it is hard to avoid all the hype. I was a marketing professor. I constantly talk about differentiation and really understanding what you're doing differently. But you know, customer research is hard. Saying you want to start a, a startup is kind of cool. And people, you know, are all excited about what you're going to do. But when you want to go and find out how many warts are on your idea, that doesn't feel very good. And you often have to ask people questions that are really hard to answer. And then you get the answers back. You're not really sure what to do with them. So I get why people don't do it. It's just such a mistake and an avoidable mistake. So Bethany, coming back to your original point about doing that research, and some of it is very hard, particularly that one-on-one talking to or or interviewing or doing the customer discovery process. But at the same time, I can tell you how many startup meetings we've been with an entrepreneur who talks about an idea and Kim pulls out her phone, Googles it and says, well, how are you different from and names three (laughs) different startups who are doing something almost identical and they haven't even done those basics, right? Like at least do a Google search. But then there are also some other pretty low investment opportunities to learn more databases like Crunchbase or PitchBook where you can track startups in in different verticals and, and look at their activity and funding patterns. USPTO, the Patent and Trade Office, has an online database you can search to see what kind of intellectual property is already out there. And once you start learning about who's investing in different verticals, look at the venture capital firms and look at their portfolio. Who else have they invested in? And as you start to look toward scaling the venture and and getting growth funding and are appropriate for venture capital funding, the more you know about their portfolio and how your your technology or venture might fit in is really helpful. And all of those, they don't cost anything other than some time. Which is why it's it's always very surprising to me that so few companies actually do it. Exactly. <laughs> it's interesting. But we see this a lot, you know, in health technology as well. It's interesting to kind of see this across the different landscapes, you know, with the companies you're working with, the companies that I'm working with. It seems to be a pretty common problem. And, you know, one of the other things that you talk about in your book, too, is 
the trade-offs and the downsides of using a lean startup approach. You know, we're talking about, you know, somebody who had kind of run their company for three years, you know, without venture capital. What are those trade-offs and downsides, you know, for somebody who might be looking to get into the health technology world, but doesn't have a ton of money? So, I mean, there are things we love about the lean startup. Very rarely, I always think of a startup as a hypothesis. So you are going to identify who you think you're talking to, what problem you're solving, and how you think you need to solve it. So that's a hypothesis. You go out into the market, either you have a product or you have some ideas and you start talking to people. Very few startups get it right out of the gate. So you are probably going to have to pivot. In fact, you should just assume that you're going to have to pivot. So the question is, how do you pivot? And what we've sometimes seen with lean startups is that every time a startup gets a piece of feedback, they make a change, they pivot. They don't really call it a pivot, but they still have pivoted. And instead of like sitting back and taking a group, a critical mass of feedback, you know, the NSF i program says 100 interviews, which and part of that, I think, is to prevent this, you know, wild pivoting where you get a critical mass and really understand what you're doing. Granted, every 10 interviews, you're sort of iterating a little bit so that when you do decide to pivot, which you will that you are also now have a new hypothesis and that you're experimenting and testing your hypothesis versus, oh, we talked to three people and they said this, so here we go this direction. Oh no, now we talked to three more people and they said that, so we go this other direction. I mean, the pivot in its cleanest form from let's call basketball is you have one foot on the ground and you move the other foot. So you're only changing one thing at a time. And very few startups seem to have the discipline to actually do the lean startup process as it's called out. That's interesting. You know, and what I hear from some startups too is the, you know, right or wrong, they view pivoting as almost a failure because their original idea didn't work. And so now they have to kind of go back to the drawing board. That's going to take more resources and more time and delay them to get to the market. Have you seen that sort of sentiment amongst the founders that you work with? Or is there, you know, kind of any advice you have for how to view pivots in a more positive light? Well, I, I do think it comes back to what Kim was talking about with being like a scientist, right? Having hypotheses and recognizing that you're going to make some mistakes. I think what you're describing, we see entrepreneurs kind of falling into two different camps or those that are just so either naively optimistic or doggedly persistent, also known as stubborn, <laughs> that they insist on staying on, on the path, even if they're getting negative feedback and they refuse to pivot or view it as a negative, as, as you were suggesting. But we also see the other of, you know, like what we call the pinball entrepreneur, that they pivoted 15 times and they're so proud of that and they're ready to go find their next pivot. And we're like, the idea isn't to find your next pivot. The idea is to find product market fit. So let's get to that if we can. Locally, we've been trying to have some conversations to structure pivots in a more positive light because I think people do see them as a failure. And our angel investor groups are kind of driving this in that they're saying, hey, you know, pivoting is fine. Tell us what you've learned. Show us what the pivot is going to do for you. And sharing stories of companies who have had to pivot two or three times, because that's really what it's going to take, you know, and just, you know, recognize that we wrote a column in IBJ, we did a workshop at a conference locally recently. So we, we are trying to get the word out that, you know, you are a scientist, this is a hypothesis, you will change direction. The question is really identifying when and how to change direction. 
And Kim, you mentioned something that was interesting to me. You said, you know, your angel investors, they're not necessarily going to view pivots as a negative. They want to know what you learned from them. I work with founders who are so worried that when they get in front of investors, even angel investors, that any type of failure or change makes them look weak and like it's a product that they shouldn't be investing in. I know you all are angel investors. Can you give us just the angel investor perspective for early stage startups? You know, what you're looking for, what that might look like if you did have to pivot, how they might best position themselves? One of the challenges with angel investors is that it's a very diverse landscape. You have kind of passion investors who haven't done a lot of investing, but invest in a cause and in a person that they believe in, but aren't necessarily going to bring a lot of other resources other than dollars, but uh, can be very helpful. Uh, But then you have angel investing groups that are fairly formal and, and structured, can write a larger check collectively across the angel group itself. But I I think particularly for angel investors with a little more experience that are also going to be a better resource for the startup, they recognize that you're going to continue to run into challenges, right? That very few startups that you invest in go smoothly from the time you put money in and, and, and into the future. So if you are able to show a pattern of resilience where you've encountered an obstacle, you've overcome that obstacle, become better for it, stronger for it, and are moving in a new direction, that to a savvy angel investor is a very compelling kind of value proposition because they recognize there is much betting on the team as they are the solution that you are currently envisioning and the market that you think you're going to be going after. So if you can demonstrate that you can use another metaphor, get knocked down and get back up and and stay at it, but also learn from it and be better, that can become a compelling part of your narrative. We actually are very skeptical of entrepreneurs who at least present themselves as never having a failure and never having made a mistake because we're like, okay, you're due, right? Lightning (laughs) is going to strike. So uh, we're going to move in a different direction. So I would say also the angel stage is when you should be doing your pivots. You want to get things lined up so that Mm -hmm. you are ready for an inflection point with VC Capital that you have figured out product market fit. So most angels are expecting some sort of movement and change. In fact, I think when you don't see a pivot is when you start to get worried as an angel investor. Like, what what are they learning? You know, and then we sometimes see what we call zombie startups, really like they're dead and they just don't know it. And so you're like, why haven't you pivoted? You know, I think being thoughtful about don't be scared. Be thoughtful about it. Show your experiments. Be a scientist. Show them where you've gone. You're going to want more money. And so. You're going to want to like have a plan, show how this plan is being executed. Don't hide it. Be upfront about it and ask for more money. Now, do you believe me again? Yeah. And and Todd, you know, something that you were saying, you're saying, you know, you're skeptical about people who have never failed, you know, or present themselves as never failing. I've worked with a couple of founders who have had ventures in the past that have failed. Um, and I know, you know, we, we say about, you know, 70 to 80% of startup ventures are going to fail. So they might be, you know, a two or three time founder who maybe hasn't had success in the past, their ventures have failed. And now they're trying to wonder how that's going to look when they go to angel investors and VCs. Any insights on on how that looks? So I think, again, it's about how you build that into your narrative of learning and resilience and also have a good explanation for not just 
Yeah, well, that one we ran out of money, but uh, this one we're not going to because you're going to keep writing bigger and bigger checks. <laughs> that isn't exactly the narrative that an investor wants to hear. But, you know, talking about, for example, we didn't have the right people on the team. We never brought on a CTO, for example, who really helped us understand our technical debt and and how to build a, a scalable kind of venture base. That's a, a common challenge that we see with startups is having a, a savvy person who can help understand the, the technical debt that you are building and how to make that pay off over time. So again, I, I think we like to see that, but not just a, I checked the box that I failed. It's I failed and here are the mistakes I made, here are the mistakes we made as a team, and here's how we're not going to make those same mistakes again. Learning, learning, demonstrating learning and experience. I mean, particularly angels are betting on the team and the problem. And so showing the strength of your knowledge of entrepreneurship and startups, your knowledge of the industry, your communication with Customers, maybe you up your customer discovery so that you're, you know, tighter about what you're trying to do. All those things can work in your favor versus someone who's like, I've never tried this before and it's so great and it's going to be awesome and you should trust me. I mean, you know, gosh, no. <laughs> you know, I've actually heard statistics that, you know, the older you are, whenever you first start your entrepreneurship journey, the more likely it is to succeed because you have all of those past, you know, failures and experiences. So I, I think that goes, you know, to exactly what you're saying, which is, you know, past failure isn't necessarily like the be all end all of whether you can get future funding. It really comes down to what you learned and how you've applied that experience to the next venture. Yeah, you know, there's like two paths that we see talked about all the time in entrepreneurs, these young bucks who have a brand new idea that bucks the trend and and they go out and they we're going to disrupt. disrupt. But those are few and far between where the bulk of startups are, are, as you said, these older older. I mean, like in their 40s. Still very young. <laughs> yeah, still very young. And, you know, have that savvy. And honestly, the, I think one of the fastest growing places that we see startups are women over 50 who are, you know, ready now to do something different than they did before and have all that knowledge that they're bringing forward with them. And that's why I think the femtech area is such a powerful kind of opportunity, particularly for fem innovators, is that a lot of the innovation in the past has been driven by people who don't necessarily feel the pain the same way that women do and, and experience. Now, you can't solely rely on that, but there's a lot of insight from having lived experience in the problem that you're solving and bringing that perspective to bear in a unique way on the solution that you're developing. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, one of the other questions that I get quite frequently from founders is let's say that they've, they've done that research, right? They've established their product market fit. And then they come and they say, great, how do I price it? You know, how do I know what somebody is willing to pay for this product? So are there any kind of tactical pricing approaches that you recommend for startups? I'm laughing, not because this is like the single hardest problem ever. I've worked in startups. I've worked in large pharmaceutical companies. Pricing is really hard. And also pricing research, I'm somewhat of an expert in market research. Pricing research is the yuckiest, most difficult to interpret research I've ever done. Yeah, I mean, what would you pay for this solution? People just Come lie right, about what they're going to pay. So I think a big part of that journey is figuring out 
not necessarily the price per se. I mean, the price has to be in there, but also the pricing model. I mean, Mm -hmm. we have so much more flexibility with pricing models. You've got a big piece of capital equipment. Do you lease it? Do you, you know, is it a payoff over time? Are you going to pay one set fee up front? Is there a subscription revenue? What subscription revenue are people going to get value out of? I mean, I think there's a lot of creativity that has to come into pricing. One of my kind of watchwords for people to think about is price to value. So if you're relatively undifferentiated, then you pretty much have to price at the price that the current market will bear. But if you can create value in your op, whatever it is you're doing, I was sort of thinking it was an app, but not necessarily, then you want to price to that value. And you know what? It usually makes sense to price higher to start and you can always come down. It's harder to price low and then try to raise prices. Interesting. You know, that, that's really helpful advice because I think a lot of the founders that I've worked with have started low because they want to show that they have that product market fit, get a couple of contracts, you know, kind of better position themselves for investors. And then I do see some pushback when they try to raise prices later. So I think that's, that's incredible advice. Well, again, it's about the value. If you haven't built the value in, then you might have to price low. But if you can think about identifying, I mean, I can tell you that the big companies are pretty smart about this. I can remember a drug we were looking to launch and it had multiple indications, but eyesight was one of those indications. And that would be the thing that people would pay the most for. So that was the first indication that we went after because, you know, we could set the price high. Pharma has figured out how to set the price high. <laughs> so we'll <laughs> <I'll> model that. <laughs> we talked about competition before, Bethany, and, and the importance of understanding your competition. But that is another way, as Kim was suggesting, where you can innovate is don't just follow someone else's pricing model, but build in value and, and perhaps the business model and pricing model itself for the customer is one way that you innovate to differentiate yourself from the market. So it, it's part of that whole bundle of the strategy of what's the value, what's the job you're doing for your customer, how do you build additional value into that over time that justifies raising prices if, if necessary. And one point on this that I want to make sure your audience really gets is if you are going to do some kind of free trial, pilot period, something like that, have the customer agree that in advance that they will start paying for it at a specific time, hopefully 30 days, maybe in the worst case, kind of a a quarter or three months, but then it converts to a paying model and they have to actively opt out. We see too many startups, particularly with technology, that offer a free pilot trial period and they get to the end and then they're like, okay, time to start paying for it. And like, oh, now we have to bring in pricing and our, you know, our purchasing team and start that process when you launch uh, with them, not after that, quote, free trial period. Oh, Todd, you're absolutely right. I typically encourage my clients to go ahead and negotiate the pricing and all of the contract Mm -hmm. terms up front, right? Then you have, you know, a discount or, you know, a free trial period, a pilot that's written into that contract. But otherwise, it's so hard to get them back to the negotiating table and you've lost some of your leverage because there's no contract in place. They're not obligated to keep going. And now you're kind of starting from, from scratch almost in a way in which if you think proactively and you structure these contracts to your benefit so that they keep going, you're able to just 
kind of continue to capitalize because it does take more effort to opt out than to keep going with something that they've already seen the value in. We've done that individually, right? <laughs> Where you have these, you know, free things that they start billing your credit card after, you know, a certain period of time. And like the pain of calling in <laughs> and, and discontinuing your account is like, is hard to think about. So we know it individually. So work that into your venture. But I also have a pet peeve here I want to raise, which is that during that free trial or that pilot period, what I see a lot of startups do is they're so busy just delivering that they don't show value to the customer. So if you want somebody not to opt out, you have to be communicating with them about what value you are creating. I mean, it could be like someone just creates a weekly or monthly report, you know, so that they can see usage, they can see cost savings, they can see whatever it is you're promising so that you don't leave it to them to sort of figure out if there's value. You make it obvious to them the value that you're delivering. Kim, I think that is spot on because if you make it hard for them to see value, they are much more likely not to see value and not to put in that effort. I absolutely think you're right. The easier you can make it to show your value, the fewer unsubscribes, right, or opt-outs you're going to have. I think that's incredible advice. And one thing I've seen in a local angel group lately is that they're asking questions of themselves as they're evaluating the startup, which is how long will it take the customer to see value? you know, is it going to be obvious that there is value to them? And will they see it after a month, six months, a year? How long is that? Because if they don't see the value, right, then how do you guarantee they're going to stay? Right. And if you're not able to quickly show exactly when they're going to get value and how they're getting value, they're clearly not going to see it as quickly without that in-depth work. And, and don't assume that customers will understand how to look for and measure that. For example, we were involved with a health IT technology that was replacing pagers and the metric that they wanted to use internally, I can't even remember <laughs> frankly what it was, but the real value was that the time from getting a page to getting a response from a specialist versus using this new technology dropped from like 30 minutes to two minutes. That's a huge benefit if you have somebody in the emergency department, et cetera, but they weren't even paying attention to or tracking that metric. What they were paying attention to was, are we getting to the right specialist and are they doing a consult? And the timing wasn't something that they initially considered. But when we help them appreciate the value of that, that added this dimension to their appreciation for the, the tool. Oh, that's fascinating. Oh my gosh, this has been such a great conversation. I have really enjoyed this and, and getting your perspectives and insights from the business world and the investment world. I'm sure a lot of our founders are going to want to get in touch with you after hearing this episode. So where can they find you? How can they contact you? Well, we are business school professors at the Kelly School of Business at Indiana University. And so our emails are pretty straightforward. I'm mksaxton at iu.edu. Todd is tsaxton at iu.edu. And believe it or not, if you go to the titanicaffect.com, you can also email us through there and people do. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you so much for being on the show and sharing your time and expertise. This has just been great. And to all of our listeners out there, thank you so much for tuning in. And we hope to see you at the next episode. Thanks, Bethany. Great questions. It's clear that you care a lot about and are, have a lot of deep knowledge in this space. So good luck with what you were doing. Thank you, Todd. Thanks for listening to Fem Innovation with Bethany Corbin. To connect with Bethany, 
Follow Femtech Lawyer on Twitter and Instagram. Visit her website at feminnovation.com and connect with her on LinkedIn. If you found value in this show, we'd really appreciate a rating and review on Apple Podcast. That helps others find the show. Thanks again for tuning in to this episode of Fem Innovation with Bethany Corbin. We hope you'll join us again next time.